Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Oh my gosh, you guys, it is so good to be back with you. Um, I apologize for not putting episodes out uh, for a little over a week and a half. In addition to uh, my daughter, we've been traveling a lot. She's had state competitions for gymnastics as well as uh, violin and orchestra. So it's been a very busy mom time and I will always put my kids before a podcast. So um, while I do love you guys and I love producing a show for you, um, I do have other responsibilities that sometimes take priority. Um, and then in addition to that, I have been sick, like incredibly sick. Thankfully, I think I'm on the tail end of it. Um, still hacking up my lungs, but uh, welcome to the Ohio Valley is pretty much all I have to say about that. So let's get into it. I am not talking about any of the banking stuff because it is all that anyone is talking about. Yes, we understand it's falling apart. Uh, No, I don't have any control over it as I don't have control over many of the things that I discuss on here, but I am not going to over inundate you guys with something that you've already heard repeatedly. Um, A controversial draft reparations proposal that includes a $5 million lump sum payment for each eligible black person could make San Francisco the first major U.S. city to fund reparations, though it faces steep financial headwinds and blistering criticism from conservatives. The $5 million per person payment is among more than 100 recommendations ranging from offering grants to buy and maintain homes to exempting Black businesses from ever paying taxes. Supervisors can vote to adopt all, none, or some of the recommendations and can change them. Several board members have expressed concerns over the potential hit the lump sum payment and other options would have on the city budget already facing a shortfall. An estimated 50,000 Black people live in San Francisco, but it's not clear how many of them would be eligible for financial reparations. The recommendations lay out a number of possible criteria, such as living in San Francisco during a certain time period, descending from someone incarcerated for the police war on drugs. Critics say the payouts make no sense in a state and city that never enslaved Black people, Generally, reparations opponents say taxpayers who were never slave owners should not have to pay money to people who were not enslaved. Reparations advocates say that view ignores a wealth of data and documentation showing how even after slavery officially ended in 1865, government policies and practices worked to imprison Black people at higher rates deny access to home and business loans, and restrict where they could work and live. That may all be true, 
But governments are not for-profit businesses. You would be stealing from people who did not participate in any of those infractions. Eric McDonald, chair of San Francisco's African American Reparations Advisory Committee, said that he's disappointed by people who don't understand the legacy of U.S. slavery and how structural racism reverberates through institutions today. There's still a veiled perspective that, candidly, Black folks don't deserve this, he said. The number itself, $5 million, is actually low when you consider the harm. Justin Hansford, who is a professor at Howard University School of Law, says that no municipal reparations plan will have enough money to right the wrongs of slavery, but he appreciates any attempts by city officials to genuinely, legitimately, authentically make things right. And that includes cash, he said. If you're going to try to say you're sorry, you have to speak in the language that people understand, and money is that language, he said. Um, who's money? And who's saying they're sorry with that money? The committee's final report is due in June, and there's no timeline for San Francisco to even act on the recommendations. At Tuesday's hearing, the board could direct staff to conduct further research, write legislation, schedule more meetings. John Dennis, who is the chair of the San Francisco Republican Party, says he'd support a serious conversation on the topic, but does not consider the board's discussion of $5 million payments to be one. This conversation we're having in San Francisco is completely unserious. They just threw a number up. There's no analysis, he said. It seems ridiculous, and it also seems that this is the one city where it could possibly pass. McDonnell is frustrated by questions of how San Francisco will produce money to pay for the panel's recommendations. We are the harmed, he said. If the judge ruled in our favor, the judge would not turn to us and say, help them figure out how to make this work. Under San Francisco's draft recommendation, a person must be at least 18 years old and have identified as a Black African American in public documents for at least 10 years. Eligible people must also meet two of eight other criteria, though the list may change. Those criteria include being born in or migrating to San Francisco between 1940 and 1966 and living in the city for at least 13 years, being displaced from San Francisco by urban renewal between 1954 and 1973, or the descendant of someone who was being a person incarcerated by the war on drugs, or their descendant, or being a descendant of an enslaved U.S. person prior to 1865. Well, good luck and Godspeed getting blood out of that turnip. A Vermont girls' high school that withdrew from a basketball tournament last month after refusing to play against a team that had a transgender player is no longer able to participate in future Vermont Principals Association activities and tournaments. VPA, the state's governing body for school sports, sent a letter to the Mid-Vermont Christian School 
on Monday saying that the school's forfeiture and stated rationale for forfeiting did not meet the expectations of the organization's policies after MVCS forfeited the February 21st game. Mid-Vermont Christian School is disappointed with the decision of the VPA, Executive Council to ban us from participation in all VP, VPA activities. We intend to appeal the decision. The head of the school at MVCS, Vicki Fogg, said in an email, Canceling our membership is not a solution and does not do anything to deal with the very real issue of safety and fairness facing women's sports in our beloved state. We urge the VPA to reconsider its policies and balance the rights of every athlete in the state. VPA said its executive council had a meeting on Monday to discuss the forfeited game and came to an immediate determination of ineligibility for Mid-Vermont Christian in VPA-sanctioned activities and tournaments going forward. The news release cites the letter VPA sent to MVCS. We withdrew from the tournament because we believe playing against an opponent with a biological male jeopardizes the fairness of the game and the safety of our players. Fogg previously had said in a statement, Allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general. In its Monday release, VPA said it reiterates its ongoing support of transgender student-athletes as not only a part of the building, I'm sorry, as not only a part of building an inclusive community for each student to grow and thrive, but also a clear expectation by Vermont state laws in the Agency of Education Best Practices and in VPA policy regarding transgender student athletes. Each student can't grow and thrive if you're putting some explicitly at a disadvantage by forcing them to compete against men. Put an NBA player on the floor next to a WNBA player and tell me who wins. Put a D1 NCAA male basketball player on the floor next to a D1 NCAA female player from the same university in the same position and tell me who wins. Do the same with high school players. If we're not talking about a game of horse, that girl is getting her ass handed to her, period. The fact that we are, in essence, discussing the death of women's athletics in the name of virtue signaling and inclusiveness is literally insane. It's not a good faith debate. It's the end of competitive sports for women if you start allowing men to take their place. What about the girl who gets benched because she can't compete against the dude who joined their team? What inclusive community for each student to grow and thrive are you creating for her? Newsflash, you aren't. You're only creating it for the one person you're making wild exceptions for. A submarine with two dead bodies and nearly three tons of cocaine aboard was seized in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Colombia, the country's Navy announced on Sunday. Two survivors, in poor health, were also found on the vessel and given first aid. These people's poor health is presumably presumably due to the inhalation 
of toxic fumes caused by fuel problems inside the boat. The roughly 50-foot-long submarine was carrying almost 5,800 pounds of cocaine worth more than $87 million. The Navy said the vessel had been bound for countries in Central America and that the seizure had kept more than 6 million doses of cocaine off the illegal market. So-called narco-subs are commonly used by traffickers in the region to transport drugs. Last year, the Colombian Navy seized a semi-submersible vessel carrying four tons of cocaine worth about $150 million. The submarines sometimes make it all the way to North America. In 2019, a submarine carrying 12,000 pounds of cocaine worth more than $165 million was seized by the Coast Guard. Pretty soon, we'll have the Colombian president telling us that their nation isn't behind the U.S. cocaine problem and say that Colombia doesn't produce or consume cocaine and that the blow epidemic is a U.S. matter. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, Mexico's president said this exact thing recently about fentanyl. And now we're declaring war on drug cartels and Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador has made it clear that he will instruct every Mexican in the United States to vote Democrat if we go to war with the drug cartels. So you could say things are going really well in the war on drugs. The Biden administration on Tuesday proposed the first ever nationwide drinking limits for toxic substances known as forever chemicals that have become pervasive in U.S. waterways. The chemicals known as PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, have been found to cause kidney and testicular cancer as well as thyroid disease. They are sometimes called forever chemicals because they linger in the environment and the human body instead of breaking down. They are sometimes called, uh, I almost said the same exact sentence, I'm not doing that today, Um, Studies have found the chemicals to be in more than 83% of U.S. waterways and in the blood of 97% of Americans. wonder who those 3% are. The substances have been used in a variety of waterproof and nonstick products, including Teflon pans, waterproof makeup, and apparel. They've also been used in firefighting foam that has been used by the military and leached into waterways through pollution from both industry and military sites. If finalized, the proposal from the EPA would require drinking water systems across the country to limit the amount of two types of PFAs known as PFOA and PFOS to four parts per trillion. It would also take action to regulate mixtures of four other types of PFAS. We anticipate that when we Fully implement, this rule will prevent thousands of deaths and reduce tens of thousands of serious PFAS-related illnesses, says the EPA Administrator Michael Regan. The drinking water limits had at least some degree of bipartisan support after years of urging three consecutive administrations of different parties to do so. I'm pleased to say a safe drinking water standard has finally been issued for PFOA and PFOS. Senator Shelley Moore Capito, 
a Republican from West Virginia, said in a written statement. If you guys knew how many times I have paused this to hack my lungs up and drink gallons of water to like soothe my voice enough that I can make it through this, you would laugh. Like I should sometime like record a behind the scenes so you guys can see what this process looks like. But anyway, I'm sorry. I totally digress. Um, The West Virginia Republican added that she's looking forward to hearing from those who will be impacted by the announcement, including local water systems and ratepayers across the country, on how we can provide assistance for implementation. In order to comply with the regulation, drinking water systems would have to monitor the substances, notify the public, and either install water treatment technology to filter them out or switch to using uncontaminated water to get under the limit. While a handful of states have put forward drinking water limits for PFAS, the EPA's proposal would be the first standard to apply nationwide. The current standard drinking water allows more PFAS in public water systems than the amount the agency has said is safe to drink. At levels as small as this, safety level, however, Substances can be difficult to detect. The EPA said that the limit it has proposed is the lowest feasible quantitation level. In response, water utilities and other industries have raised serious concerns about the potential costs of compliance. Tom Dobbins, who's the CEO of the Association of Metropolitan Water Agencies, said in a statement the group is concerned about the overall cost drinking water utilities will incur to comply with this proposed rulemaking, which, although not stated in the article, will more than likely be pushed onto the consumer. Some environmental activists, meanwhile, praised the EPA's approach. Of course they did, because everything is free to these people. It will be interesting to see, with the Supreme Court's ruling last year, how this plays out. Does their ruling on emissions extend to other sweeping mandates that could be applied applied federally, such as this one? I smell another challenge headed to the Supreme Court. She is a DJ, plays violin and piano. She runs 45 stores and 19 product lines, has a genius IQ, She developed her own media network for media licensing and NFTs. She helped pass seven laws and federal legislation to protect teens in systematically abusive facilities. She's an artist, a philanthropist, a DJ and investor, a CEO, an author, an entrepreneur, and a fashion icon. And now she's a mom. And that's hot. Paris Hilton presented her mother, Kathy, with a gift to soften the blow before revealing that she had been keeping a major secret. The 42-year-old heiress and her husband, Carter Room, kept their son Phoenix Barron's existence hidden from almost everyone, including their families, until after he was born via surrogate in January. In a new interview with Rolling Stone, Paris Hilton recalled inviting Kathy over as if it was any other regular day before handing her a blue Chanel bag and introducing her to her grandson for the first time. I was like, if I give her Chanel first, 
Maybe she won't be so upset that I didn't tell her about this, she explained. Paris then detailed the moment that um, her mother got to meet her grandson and her mother's emotional reaction. I was holding the baby on my shoulder with a blanket over him, and then I just sat down. Hilton shared. She's like, what's that? And I was like, a baby, meet your grandson. She's like, is this yours? And she starts crying. She's like, oh, let me hold him. He's the most beautiful baby I've ever seen in my life. Oh, he's so beautiful. She was just in tears. Hilton told the outlet that only her medical team and the surrogate knew about Phoenix until a week before he was born, or after he was born, I apologize. When the surrogate was pregnant with Phoenix, she watched episodes of Hilton's reality show, The Simple Life, so that the fetus would become familiar with her voice. After Paris and Room learned that their first child was arriving a week and a half early, she put on a brunette wig, rushed to the Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles to see their baby being born. Hilton recalled that the pair cried as they witnessed their baby's birth. The couple were able to take him home that night where they spent some time secluded with their newborn. It was just like, oh my God, I'm a mom, she said. My life has just been so public. My whole life has been just invaded. I felt like for my baby, I just wanted him to come in the world and just be here. In her interview with Harper's Bazaar, Hilton said that she has fully embraced motherhood and Phoenix's privacy and safety are her top priorities. She said, I want to protect him and be with him every second. You have this mother instinct that kicks in, which I've never had before, so I feel so complete now. Normally, I don't do the celebrity gossip thing, but this is a win. Anytime you hear a woman who says being a mother offers the feeling of being complete, that's a win. Good for her and wishing her all the best in motherhood. While she has accomplished so many awesome things, being a mother is what we are designed for, and that is why she feels complete. In other Hollywood smut, because I'm just full of it today, Drew Barrymore was blasted on Twitter for literally kneeling to a man during an interview with trans TikToker Dylan Mulvaney. Mulvaney appeared on the Drew Barrymore show Monday morning to discuss Mulvaney's TikTok series, Days of Girlhood which recently reached a year-long milestone. During this segment, they discuss combating hatred in their careers. It's interesting because I look at someone like you and I can't imagine anybody disliking you, Mulvaney remarked. Oh, please, Barrymore answered, kneeling in front of Mulvaney. Do you want to know how, do you want to know, ironically, who dislikes me the most sometimes? Myself. This interview was incredibly scripted and even more awkward than it sounds. The exchange led to a hug between the two as they continued the segment kneeling and sitting on the floor while there were chairs around. This display was very quickly attacked by Twitter users for the female Barrymore apparently debasing herself to the biologically male Mulvaney. This is not the part that I have the biggest issue with, but it certainly has been the main talking point. Notably, not much discussed, was Barrymore's wardrobe choice of a suit while Mulvaney wore a dress. 
Mulvaney previously went viral in October after interviewing Joe Biden on transgender issues. Mulvaney questioned Biden on whether he believed that states had the right to ban gender-affirming health care. I don't think any state or anybody should have the right to do that. As a moral question and as a legal question, Biden responded, I just think it's wrong. The interview was slammed on social media for promoting gender transitions, as well as what many saw as a controversial figure. In a notable video, Mulvaney called for efforts to, quote, normalize women having bulges visible in their crotch area. Normalize the bulge, Mulvaney said. We are normalizing the bulge. Women can have bulges, and that's okay. We're not going to stare at their crotches while they're wearing their little shopping shorts. The part that I actually took issue with in the interview that no one is talking about was Mulvaney's evocation of social media to target his young audience. His exact quote was, quote, There was so much that came up this year that I had no idea that I was going to have to figure out in womanhood and vulnerable things I didn't even know were there. Um, maybe because you're not a woman. So of course you couldn't possibly figure it out. You've been playing pretend for a year. He went on to say, I think back to my childhood self and I think about it as if I was following myself on TikTok as a young kid, what would I want to hear? Or so much of my audience is a younger demographic and I sort of would love to show transness in a way we haven't seen it before because I figured when I came out, that I would have to go into hiding and do all my surgeries privately and change my name. And I instead decided, hey, let me see if the world is willing to accept me this way from day one, and they did. I want to be extremely clear. I know and understand that there are people who suffer from gender dysphoria as a mental health issue. These individuals are uncomfortable in their bodies and I support them living the life that they wish to lead as grown adults in whatever manner they so choose. The second that they begin using their mental health issues as a cudgel against unsuspecting, malleable, and impressionable children to manipulate them in an effort to validate their own issues, I have a problem with them, and I will not back down from this. That is your Wednesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. We have book club tonight. We're getting close to wrapping up uh, wrapping up our discussion on Waco, and we'll soon be starting a new book called Red Rising. Uh, you can join us this evening for that discussion if you would like. Uh, we will begin at 10.15 Eastern Standard Time on Twitter Spaces. Otherwise, I will hopefully see you guys tomorrow. Actually, that's a lie. I don't record on nights that I have book clubs, so I'll see you on Friday. Um, I love you guys so much. Thanks for sticking with me. You guys take care and have a wonderful day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.